is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, T. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today. Hope you're having a great week and ready for an even better weekend, hopefully. Um, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our most recent episode on Patreon. It was about the disappearance and suspected murder of 18-year-old Debony Escobar. It is a baffling Oh, when we say baffling, we mean a baffling case. Truly insane. It's out of Mexico, and it reminds me so much of Elisa Lamb's story from the Cecil Hotel. Cecil, not Cecil, right? Cecil, Cecil. I think, right? (laughs) Yeah, and, um, you know, since Debony was also found in a water tank after a very suspicious evening, and we actually released a portion of the episode yesterday on our Going West feed to kind of give you guys a sneak peek of what our Patreon episodes are like, which are exactly like Going West episodes. Although we do cover some international cases as well. Exactly. So go check that out and head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast to listen to all 72 episodes that we have over there. That's 72 episodes, full length and ad free. Yes, that we will not cover on Going West. And uh, that's it. Yeah. All right, guys. This is episode 228 of Going West. So let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In August of 1983, a 20-year-old woman working as a cocktail waitress and a DJ was found strangled to death in a vacant field in Texas. When police began investigating her murder, they released the sketch of a mystery man they called the cowboy, hoping someone could identify him. Then, her mother began receiving threatening phone calls from an unknown man but police had no idea if they were coming from her killer or who her killer even was. And it would be decades before they would find out. This is the story of Susan Eads. was born on April 7th, 1963 to Shirley and Doyle Eads in Mississippi. And one of five, she had two brothers, Dennis and Sherman, and two sisters named Debbie and Donna. When Susan was 13 years old, her family moved to Seabrook, Texas. So they left Mississippi, headed on over to Texas. And Seabrook is about a 30-minute drive southwest of Houston, Texas, 
on the Galveston Bay, and it had a population of about 6,000 people at the time. Sadly, in 1972, when Susan was just nine years old, the family lost her dad, Doyle. Susan was described by her brother Dennis as sweet and a spitfire. Dennis also added, quote, She'd fight a tiger and I would bet on her to win. Susan loved to sing and was dabbling in becoming a DJ. After graduating from Clear Lake High School in Houston, Susan lived at home and saved money working as a cocktail waitress. And her job was on NASA Road 1, which is in Seabrook, and it's dotted with waterfront bars and restaurants and filled with locals and tourists alike. On August 30th, 1983, 20-year-old Susan left for work around 4.30 p.m. Now, according to her brother, she worked at a bar called Charlie's in the Nassau Bay area, just a 10-minute drive southwest of Seabrook until around 7 p.m. She then headed to another bar called Prickly Pear in Webster, Texas, just another five minutes down the road along the Clear Lake Inlet on which Seabrook was situated. Susan worked there until about 12.30 a.m. on the early morning of August 31st. Again, this is 1983. So after ending her shift at the Prickly Pear, Susan and a few friends and co-workers headed to a club nearby called Jason's. Her friends remember her talking to an unknown man in a cowboy hat who was very persistent and in pursuit of her. They remember him being a white man with a beard and that he asked her to dance and to buy her a drink multiple times, which she politely declined. So after repeatedly approaching her and Susan repeatedly shooting this guy down, other bargoers remember him seeming pretty frustrated. Leave her alone, dude. Yeah, seriously, just leave her the fuck alone. Around 2.30 a.m., she said goodbye to her friends and left by herself, heading to the back of the club where her 1976 Chevy Monte Carlo was parked. She was never seen alive again. Her friends remember the creepy man in the cowboy hat leaving just seconds after she did. Which is not surprising, like following her everywhere in the bar and then following her as she leaves out the back by herself in the wee hours of the night. Yeah, he's very persistent. And super, super creepy. So the next day, which was August 31st, so I know I just said August 31st, but that was because it was in the early morning. But later on that day of August 31st, 1983, a group of college students driving along NASA Road 1 that I mentioned a minute ago near the Johnson Space Center in Seabrook saw something in the grass along the side of the road, and they stopped to investigate further. It was the body of a young woman, naked and strangled to death. Susan was found in a vacant lot near the corner of NASA Road 1 and Elam Street, face down beneath a tree trunk with bruises and scratches all over her back and face. The method of killing was very unique. She had been strangled with her own clothing. She was wearing a black bodysuit that night that had been tied to a stick that her killer had likely found nearby, and they basically turned it into a tourniquet or a device that is, you know, usually used on limbs to stop blood flow to a certain area. And this was such a particular method that detectives wondered if it was the work of a serial killer. Yeah, it seemed like kind of a diligent action. Yeah, I mean... and Very it, purposeful. Yeah, and very particular. Like I just said, not to repeat myself. But Absolutely, yeah. Very specific, rather. 
Um, so still unidentified because they didn't know that this was Susan quite yet. They took her away for an autopsy. And tragically, the autopsy did reveal that she had also been sexually assaulted. With that, detectives swept the scene and found a pair of pantyhose, a single shoe, and a set of keys near her body. Susan's Chevy was found in the parking lot of the Gulf States Yacht Store adjacent to the vacant lot in which she was found. A match of the discarded keys in the abandoned vehicle led them to search her car. Inside, they found that shoe that matched the one that was found near her body at the crime scene, as well as the scattered contents of her purse in the back seat, including prescription medication with her name on it. Now, due to the appearance of the interior of the car, police were led to believe that the attack took place in her car and that her attacker had then dragged her across the street to the vacant lot where he assaulted and killed her. Within hours, police confirmed from the state DMV records that the victim was indeed Susan Eads. And again, I just wanted to mention that Susan was 20 years old at the time of her death. So Sergeant Nona Holloman went to tell Susan's mom, Shirley herself, and remembers crying in each other's arms at the news of this horrific loss. It had been Nona's first homicide case. Susan and her mom lived just a mile away, and Sergeant Will Haskett said, quote, It was just unusual for that to happen in a place like Seabrook. Shirley explained that she had never really been nervous that Susan hadn't come home because she was kind of a night owl and would often crash at friends' houses after being out and about. Especially since she was a cocktail waitress, it makes sense that right. she doesn't always come home you know, at night because she's out working or, you know, when you're in that lifestyle as a bartender, you're yeah, in the nightlife. Yeah. Lifestyle. You're in that industry. So it's, yeah, it's not out of the ordinary to stay out a little later and not, you know, not come home that night. And again, she's 20 years old. Right. So, so it happened so quickly that she was never even reported missing, which we don't see a lot in cases, at least the ones that we cover where someone's body is found before they're reported missing because a lot of the times killers do try to conceal the body, yes. which we obviously didn't see happen in this case. So Susan's autopsy determined that she had been found about 12 hours after she was killed. And she had also been so close to getting home that investigators believe she was likely followed and that her killer pulled her over perhaps, as we've seen before, you know, under the guise of like a fender bender. Right. So naturally, they set their sights on that pushy-ass cowboy guy in the cowboy hat from the club early that morning. After talking to her friends with whom she'd been at the bar, as well as employees of Jason's club and anyone else they could pinpoint having been there, police put together a composite sketch of the man who had been bothering Susan, and they released this to the public. Tips flooded in, but one from a neighboring police department was particularly intriguing. And this is kind of surprising to me because, I mean, this is Texas, so it's not like having a cowboy hat is unusual. Sure, yeah. So the fact that tips came in, even just from a, a sketch of a white bearded man in a cowboy hat, it's like kind of awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, this is back in 1983, so there's not security footage in this bar or outside of this bar, unfortunately. Right. Well, why don't you tell us about this tip? Absolutely. So the Polk County Sheriff's Office in nearby Livingston, Texas, had handled a similar case. 
A young woman had survived a violent attack where she was robbed, raped, and then strangled with her own clothing. With her own clothing. Yeah. So Connection there, there. Seems to be an MO here. So she managed to survive, but that was clearly not her attacker's intention. Like Susan, she was a server and left work by herself late at night. The man, who was now in police custody, also closely resembled the composite sketch from that night at Jason's club. His name was Travis Scoggins. Upon seeing his picture, Susan's friends positively identified him as the man in the cowboy hat that night. Like the cowboy, he had dark hair and a mustache and was known to don cowboy hats. Travis was interviewed by the Seabrook Police Department from jail, and he initially claimed that he had nothing to do with Susan's murder, although he also failed a polygraph test that he was administered, leaving the answer inconclusive. But a short time later, Travis contacted the Seabrook Police Department asking to be interviewed again, and he confessed to the rape and murder of Susan Eads. So Travis described Susan accurately and explained that he had followed her to her car parked in the back parking lot, which was also accurate. Concerned that it was a false confession, they tabled him as a suspect to focus on zeroing in on the real perpetrator. And police assumed that Travis was just interested in like garnering more media attention, which to me is so crazy because if he had even supposedly tried to murder this other woman, and then he didn't murder Susan, but her friends identified him as the man in the cowboy hat who followed her out. Like, it's just weird that this isn't him. Yeah, it's very confusing. And that just means that there's a couple a couple Co- more douchebags running in around hats. Yeah, in cowboy hats. <laughs> yeah, again, no surprise here. It's Texas. So around this same time, Susan's mother, Shirley, told police that she had been receiving eerie phone calls at the home in which she used to share with her daughter. A man would always call and ask for Susan, but when Shirley would say she wasn't there, the man would tell her that it was okay and that he would talk to her instead. So he's like, oh, that's fine that Susan's not here. Let's chat though. Yeah, not odd at all. So she described him as a man likely in his 30s, just by the voice of him, and said that he would threaten that he had naked photos of Susan that he was planning to release. He would always offer to meet Shirley somewhere and show her, but once she would press him on meeting up, he would end the call. And this is a weird thing to taunt her about. Like, it's not, he's not taunting her about Susan being deceased. He's taunting her about nude photos he supposedly has. Yeah, like about why? releasing some photos. It does, like, what's the purpose of that? So back then, it took a certain amount of time before the call was able to be traced, as we have talked about in other cases that we've covered. But the caller always hung up on Shirley before police were able to trace its origin. A transcript of one of these phone calls reads, I'm going to be Shirley Heath is going to be the caller. You said you knew Susan? Yes. Well, I still can't believe I never knew of you. I don't understand that. Some people have secrets that they like to keep to themselves. You have some pictures of her you told me? I'd like to see them. Just you. I'm not going to show them to anyone else. Would you want to meet me somewhere? My place or a motel or something like that? The phone calls tormenting Shirley came in nearly every week, and sometimes multiple times per week for almost a year after Susan's death. But then, as mysteriously as they had started, they stopped. 
Dennis explained that it really took its toll on his mother, describing it as throwing salt in a very raw wound. But neither the police nor the phone company were ever able to trace the calls. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com/goingwest. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. Rocketmoney.com slash going west. Susan's case bore a striking resemblance to another in the area at that time. The kidnapping of 19-year-old Shelly Sykes in Galveston, Texas. Now, as we mentioned before, Seabrook sits on the Galveston Bay, and the city of Galveston itself is another 30 miles or 48 kilometers southeast of Seabrook, right on the Gulf of Mexico. Like Susan, Shelly had been working late at a restaurant and left by herself. She was a student at the University of Texas and was living at home in Texas City, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers from where she worked. She was last seen leaving Gaido's seafood restaurant, where she was a server, shortly before midnight. Now, in the early morning hours of May 24, 1986, so about three years after Susan's murder, while driving home, she encountered 28-year-old John Robert King, who was from Baycliff, Texas, another Galveston Bay beach town, and 31-year-old Gerald Zwarst who, like Susan, was from Seabrook. Just over 24 hours later, Shelley's blue 1980 Ford Pinto was found abandoned and trapped in mud along an access road to Interstate 45, near the bridge from Galveston Island to the mainland, where Texas City is situated along the beach. Now, the driver's side window was broken, and there were blood stains in the interior of the car, but there was no sign of Shelley. It wasn't until over a year later that John Robert King, likely racked with guilt, called the police after a failed suicide attempt and admitted that he and his friend Gerald had abducted and murdered 19-year-old Shelley. At first, he told authorities that they had buried her near his residence in San Leon, Texas, but she wasn't found there. And strangely, it was his blood that was found in Shelley's car, not Shelley's. I mean, that's kind of an odd circumstance. You don't typically see that happening. Yeah, strange twist. So he agreed, to, but you know, we have we do have this connection, so we know we know that's him. So he agreed to give up the real location of her body in exchange for a lighter sentence, but later recanted the offer. John Robert King died in prison in 2015, and Gerald Zwarst died in prison in 2020. Both men were sentenced to life in prison, but have never admitted to law enforcement where they left Shelley Sykes' body, which is so frustrating because 
you're already admitting to it. Like, why would you call police and say, I did this, but I'm not going to give you details and I'm not going down for it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really unfortunate, but, you know, just Shelly's family knowing who these men were and that they were potentially involved in their daughter's murder. I mean, that, that kind of gives some closure, but still, these guys uh, didn't really have to pay for Shelly's murder. Yeah, and also just... I mean, the fact that they had said that her body was in one place and it wasn't, like, why even say that? And now her family doesn't get to bury her. Like, it's just such a dumb situation. I mean, I'm glad that they, uh, you know, were in prison for the rest of their lives, at least. (laughs) True, true. Because of the similarities in the cases, you know, between Susan's and Shelley's, they were investigated, a.k.a. Robert John King and Gerald Swurst, were investigated for the involvement in Susan's murder as well but no evidence was found to substantiate a link in the cases. A psychic was also tapped to search for answers in the case for Susan's murder, but her findings were inconclusive. So police reported that there were some accuracies and some inaccuracies and that nothing really came from it. So we've mentioned these guys in cases before, but the Texas Rangers are an elite organization of experts brought in to conduct investigations into especially heinous crimes, cold cases, and other extreme circumstances, such as political corruption and shootings that involve officers. Now, in 2017, 34 years after Susan's murder, one Texas Ranger named Brandon Bess said that he received a call from a doctor named Michael Schwartz, who had noticed similarities between Susan's case and the serial killings of murderer Anthony Shore. Anthony was a convicted child molester and serial killer from Texas who, at the time of the tip, was sitting on death row awaiting his fate. Between 1986 and 2000, he raped and killed at least four young women in the Houston area, one as young as nine years old, and sexually assaulted others. In 1998, he was convicted of beating, drugging, and raping his own two daughters, and, while awaiting trial, was placed on probation and forced to submit a DNA sample. When the sample was entered into the CODIS database, it came back as a match in the unsolved murder of a 21-year-old woman named Maria del Carmen Estrada, who was sexually assaulted, strangled, and discarded behind a Dairy Queen in 1992. So this guy is literally pure fucking evil. Yeah, he really is. So in 2003, when Anthony was brought in for questioning about his involvement in Maria's murder, he confessed to the assault and murder of three other girls and the binding and rape of another. His first victim was 15-year-old Lori Tremblay, whom he had strangled in 1986 before discarding her body behind a Mexican restaurant in Houston. So it appears that this is kind of this guy's M.O. He'll uh, strangle and murder a girl and then just dump them behind like a fast food restaurant. Yeah, exactly. So his second was Maria in 1992, killed the same way and like you said, also dumped in the parking lot of a local business. His third victim was the only one to have escaped with their life intact. In 1993, he bound and sexually assaulted 14-year-old Selma Jansky, but didn't kill her and fled the scene instead. The following year, in 1994, he beat, assaulted, and strangled 9-year-old Diana Rebillard, 
And finally, in 1995, so the next year, he strangled 16-year-old Dana Sanchez before calling and directing police to her body himself while still evading capture. Anthony claimed that he had come to use his calling card of tourniquets as his method of strangulation because he had hurt his finger strangling his first victim, Lori, with a ligature. Little bitch. I mean, what a little bitch. Seriously. Um, anyway. Were you, were you going to say we had the same thought? I was going to say more. I was going to say more because this guy just literally pisses me off. But So frustratingly, because the most forensic evidence was found in Maria's case, the prosecutor chose to charge Anthony Shore in Maria's death only. But the jury had heard enough. And after only one hour of deliberation, one hour, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection in 2004 and sat on death row until his execution on January 18th, 2018. Yeah, I mean, one hour makes sense. You don't need a lot of time to figure out this guy is a horrible human being. Yeah, seriously. So when the Texas Rangers began investigating the possible connection, they found more and more clues that pointed toward Anthony's involvement. As we mentioned, his method of killing was always strangulation via tourniquet, even earning him the moniker, the tourniquet killer. He fit the description of a man wearing the cowboy hat in the club on the night of Susan's murder, and more suspiciously, had worked as a lineman for the local telephone company, which may explain the phantom phone calls that Shirley may have been receiving, Shirley again is Susan's mother, and how they were able to remain concealed. I mean, that definitely makes sense. If he worked as a lineman for a telephone company, he would know uh, what lines to use and what, what telephones to not use exactly. and how long to stay or not stay on the phone. Exactly. So true. So Susan's uncle and Anthony's father even worked together. So that is a connection as well. But Anthony insisted that he was not involved in Susan's murder and that as someone who was interested in young girls, disgusting to admit, he wasn't attracted to Susan. Oh, God. Yeah. Ugh. In his words, quote, Look at the picture. My victims don't look like this. I like the way little girls look. I'm not interested in her. Uh, uh. However, investigators poked a hole in this theory because at just five foot one inches tall and a hundred pounds, Susan was a very small woman and she was the same stature as Anthony's second victim, Maria. And at 21, Maria was actually older than Susan. So yeah, so this whole story of, oh, I like little girls. I mean, you, you killed Maria, who was 21. Right, and I actually think that is a good kind of a good thing to say on his part like oh no I wouldn't kill her because she's not my type but then it's like you're caught in a lie because of Maria you know so when they ran DNA testing on the male DNA found on Susan's bodysuit and pantyhose Anthony's was not a match and neither was Travis Scoggins so this is obviously very unfortunate because yeah. We have two people, I mean, originally they thought that it was Travis Scoggins, and then you have Anthony, and neither one of these guys, like, that that just to me, it has to be the hardest part of this type of investigation. Well, also with John Robert King and uh, Gerald Zwarst, like, there's all these potential suspects that you think could do it. Like, you're, you're looking at their other crimes, and you're making these connections, yeah, like you're I like, mentioned earlier. Yeah, it makes earlier. sense. Yeah, but somehow, none of these guys did it. So in 2020, however, 
37 years after Susan's death. Law enforcement got a hit in the case of Susan Eads's unsolved murder. The DNA that they had collected from the crime scene three years before DNA profiling even began had matched with someone on a genealogy site. Gotta love genealogy. Oh my God, yeah, it's just the best outcome. So the relative of this DNA match had been a child at the time of the murder and had not known the perpetrator, so was helpful in cooperating with investigators. The lead turned out to be correct and the quote, cowboy finally had a name, Arthur Raymond Davis. Now upon looking him up, Police found that Arthur fit the description perfectly. A white man with dark hair and a mustache. He had been 35 at the time of Susan's murder, and he was even known to wear cowboy hats. And we, of course, have a picture of this, and we'll post it on our Instagram. They believe that he followed Susan out of the bar, got her to pull over her car, then dragged her to the field and assaulted her and killed her there. It's so crazy thinking that it took this long to find a guy that so many people noticed harassing Susan the night she was killed. Like her friends and all these people saw this man. He was out in the open, very openly interested in her and followed her out. And it still took this long. Of course, not for lack of trying. Yeah. But. And, you know, we talked about the description of this person earlier and how it's kind of a vague description. It's it a is. white guy with a mustache and a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, I can imagine how hard it was not, again, not having security footage to be able to track this guy down. True. Again, yeah, you're right. Very basic description. So Arthur was a fishing boat captain and a Vietnam veteran, but in a cruel twist of fate, he was already dead. In fact, he had died just months after he killed Susan, which is so crazy. So insane. So in late 1983, Arthur was involved in a serious one-car accident just a mile away from where Susan's body was found. If that is not some sort of divine intervention shit, I don't know what is. Like the fact that like he literally died a month after uh, he killed Susan and was in just like a car wreck by himself. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, it's kind of, it's frustrating because you don't want him to have lived all this time and, you know, gotten away with it for 37 years because that's not fair. You got to live your whole life and Susan didn't. Sure, so but he, you also want to see justice. Well, yeah, so that's what I mean. It's like, you're right. Like, it is kind of this amazing thing that he didn't live much longer than her because he didn't deserve to anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, but also at the same time, not having the answers that I'm sure the family wants, even though we can pretty much guess that he was really pissed that she rejected him, which she can rightfully do. And, you know, he wanted to assault her. Yeah, and it's just devastating. Like, like you're saying, it's very devastating for the family to go so long without answers. But I'm just so glad that genealogy exists for this reason. Totally agree. So after this uh, car accident that Arthur had, he was hospitalized for a month, and he died of his injuries on January 16th, 1984. This was, of course, cold comfort to Susan's family, friends, and the investigators who had worked on her case for almost four decades. Sergeant Nona Holloman, the one to break the news of her daughter's gruesome murder to Susan's mother, Shirley, had retired in 2014, but still thought of the family and the case often, and she was thrilled to see it get the closure that it deserved. She said, quote, "'Now Susan can finally rest.'" and we know who did this to her. 
So Nona had actually found out about the case being solved on her birthday and called it her birthday present. But it seemed like a shallow victory when there was no other information to offer the loved ones that she left behind. The circumstances surrounding her death are still shrouded in mystery. Like who Arthur Davis really was, why and how he did it, and if he had done it to anyone else, which is obviously a huge concern because if you do it once, you can do it again. Sure. And on top of all the questions that he left behind, Shirley Eads, who is Susan's mother, passed away in 1992, so less than 10 years after Susan's murder, without ever knowing what really happened to her daughter. But the biggest mystery of all are those taunting phone calls that Shirley received for months after the murder, because now we know that this couldn't have been Arthur because the calls persisted after Arthur was hospitalized and later died. So he couldn't have been the one behind them. So who was? So just some jerk was making these calls. It's just so weird to me. And surely this person knew, or surely this person knew that Susan was no longer alive. So what a weird thing to happen and it not to be the killer. Yeah, a weird and really disgusting thing to do. And we may never know who it is, but there is still a tip line open for any information about the circumstances of Susan Eads' death. And Texas Crime Stoppers, which you can reach at 1-800-252-TIPS or 8477, is still offering a $3,000 reward for information. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. What a mysterious story. I just can't get over those phone calls. And just the fact that he died months after Susan, like what a what a story. I can't get over the fact that there were, you know, multiple people who investigators thought could have been responsible for Susan's murder. And it ended up just being this random guy. Yeah, this guy like totally off the radar. And again, yeah. somehow he was not on police's radar, despite the fact that he was witnessed inside harassing her. And just the fact that she was minding her own business, was not interested in this dude, and he wouldn't take no for an answer is what is so frustrating about so many young women's cases that we see this all the time. But also, how crazy is it? I mean, just how insane is it that he literally died a month after taking Susan's life? In the same area of where her body was found. So, yeah, I mean, that obviously was very hard for investigators because they're looking for somebody who doesn't even exist anymore. Well, and I wonder, like, you know, with this single car accident, was it purposeful? Did he crash on purpose? Was he trying to kill himself? Was he drunk? Like, what What happened there? You know, who really single knows? car accident. Yeah, I really wish we had more information on Arthur Davis because it's just like, like, who the hell is this guy? Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. And also, don't forget to check out our sneak peek of our new Patreon episode on 18-year-old Debony Escobar. That happened earlier this year in Mexico. It's a crazy and devastating case. Her family is still looking for answers. She was found in a water tank, and it's heavily, heavily suspected that she was murdered. So please go listen to our little sneak peek. If you want to hear the whole episode, go on patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. Also, make sure that you share this show with your friends and your family and if you'd like to leave us a review we always love to see those yes and we'll see you guys next time 
All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.